Let's open our Bibles now to the book of Esther as we continue. We are nearing the end of of our study of this book. We are in chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. And as you are able, once more, let's stand together as we read the word of the Lord. Again, we don't do this out of empty tradition. We do this in honor of God's word. We do this as a tangible, physical reminder to ourselves that... It's the authority of God's word that's driving this church. And and when we gather together and sit under the teaching of God's word, it is this inerrant word from God that, that we yield our lives before. So hear now the word of the Lord, Esther chapter 8, starting in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. She said, if it pleased the king and if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, and to Mordecai the Jew, behold, I have given the house of Haman. I have given Esther the house of Haman, and have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The scribes were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. On the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials from the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy, of what was, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all the peoples. The Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rose out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we rejoice in this good and pure and perfect gift. We pray by your spirit that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are receptive. We pray by your spirit that you would lift our eyes to behold Christ. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we're not going to rehearse the entire story of Esther again. But last week we saw the most incredible, pivotal reversal of fortunes. We, we saw Haman, this wicked Haman who had devised and manipulated the king into sending this edict out that meant the death of all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire, really in the entire world. As we we spoke about in Sunday school this morning, this has always been Satan's plan. This has always been the serpent's plan to, to annihilate God's people, the children of God, so that God's promises could not be true. And here again, we see that playing out in the book of Esther. Kill all the Jews and then the Messiah can never come. But we saw this Haman who who devised this plan, this agent of Satan, go from being on absolute top of the world, the greatest moment in his whole life, to being on top of a 75-foot structure he had built on his front yard that he intended to kill Mordecai on. And we saw Haman himself impaled upon that 75-foot structure. This thing that he had built to kill Mordecai became the instrument of his own death. That's where we left off last week. And now we pick up as the story continues in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. We're going to kind of camp out on these early verses for a lot of our time this morning. One commentator on Esther, Ian DeGood, points out that here in these verses, it's the very first time that Esther has revealed who Mordecai actually is to her. It's the first time she's told the king that Mordecai is not just her cousin, he is really her adoptive father. It's the first time she's revealed to the king that they're both Jews. And we don't know what would have happened We don't know what would have happened if Esther had just said this from the start. If she had revealed her Judaism right from the start. If she had revealed her relationship to Mordecai right from the start. From the very moment she first came into the king's harem during that wicked, wicked contest that the king hosted years ago. But this commentator points out, it's much more reasonable to think that things would have gone well for Esther if she had just told him that. That there was nothing negative at all that would have happened if she had revealed her Judaism and who Mordecai was to her. If she would just been honest from the beginning. Mordecai is my father and we're both Jewish. He writes this. Far from being disturbed by Esther's revelation that she was Jewish, 
The king's response to the news was to promote Mordecai into Haman's former position as vizier over the empire. This fact should make us wonder once again about the wisdom of Esther's entire chameleon strategy. Not only was it morally dubious, to say the least, for Esther to hide her Jewishness, since it required her to live as a practical pagan for five years, but now it turns out that even pragmatically it may have been a mistake. Perhaps if Esther had revealed her Jewishness and her connection to Mordecai back in chapter 2, the whole threat to the Jewish people might have been circumvented. The king might even have promoted Mordecai to the rank of vizier after he uncovered the attempt on the king's life. Haman might not have risen to power at all. That, that, this, that might seem far-fetched to us. If she had just been honest about who she was, they wouldn't be in this predicament at all. But if you remember all the way back to when this, this transition between chapter 2 and chapter 3, chapter 2 ends with Mordecai saving the king's life. Verse 23 says it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai saves the king's life, uncovers this plot to assassinate the king. Esther tells the king that Mordecai is the one who did it. They write it down in the Chronicles of the king, right there in the king's presence. And then in the very next verse, and remember, as we transition from chapter 2 to chapter 3, there were no chapter and verse divisions in the original manuscripts of, of Esther or any other biblical book. So as the story goes on, the very next breath, the very next sentence, as we are expecting to hear what is done to honor Mordecai, we read this in verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. It was a very strange transition in the book. So this commentator says this, it's not crazy to think if the king knew who Mordecai really was, that he would have been promoted over Haman, at least in the mind of the narrator as he tells this story. So far from bringing about the desired result of safety, Esther's deception and hiddenness may actually have been what unwittingly opened the door to danger for not only her, but for her whole people. I think this is... Not just plausible, I think he's right. That this deception, this hiding who she was, hiding who Mordecai was to her, is really just one more step in the process that got them into this situation now where all the Jews are condemned and there's a madman who wants to kill Mordecai personally. And as we've done through the book of Esther, as we look back, especially in the early chapters, and we go, there are no real heroes here. Everyone seems sinful. Everyone seems to be doing the wrong things. We, we need to ask ourselves how often we do these same things. It, it won't do for us just to look back through the corridors of time and judge Esther and Mordecai and go, yeah, they were dumb. They shouldn't have done that. They were cowardly or whatever it is that we think about them. How, how often do we hide the light of righteousness under a basket? And we think that doing so is going to help out in the long run. How often do we hide the hard truths of the gospel, thinking that that's the wisest plan? We just need to soften it. We need to knock off all the rough edges. We, 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 we live in a culture that, that hates these hard truths, and so we just need to not bring them up. We need to not talk about it. I remember one pastor years ago was asked, a very prominent, famous a uh, pastor was asked to, to pray at an inauguration and backlash came because they uncovered some things he had said decades previously about homosexuality 
being sinful. And the backlash came. How dare you have this bigoted man? And the pastor's response was, we haven't even talked about that topic in our church in over a decade. How often do we think that that's the way? We take these difficult things out and we set them aside. We save them for last. I can remember an apologetics class in college where they told us the very last and final thing you do is make any reference to the Bible whatsoever because the unbelieving world just doesn't like that. And so spend all your time on all these other things and then at the very end we'll bring that in and go, well, the Bible does say this too. How often do we think that we're wiser than God? And that's what we're doing every time we try to knock the rough edges off. Every time we're embarrassed by something the Bible says. Now, to be clear, there are times that call for wisdom. That there is wisdom in not saying everything we know to be true all at once. I hope you know that. But not just opening up both barrels of the gospel shotgun on people with all the bad news. Just because something's true doesn't mean it's always the right time to say it. And it doesn't mean you're the right person to say it. That's true. We must exercise wisdom. But most often, it's not on account of wisdom that we don't speak. It's on account of the fear of man that we don't speak. Christians and even churches refuse to discuss certain topics. They refuse to talk about certain things. They have convinced themselves that that is noble, that that is righteous, and that that is loving, and that that is good, that it will somehow make Christianity more appealing to the unbelieving world to present some sort of fake version of it to them, or glossed over version, hiding the truth of God under a basket, claiming that somehow under that basket it's going to give off more light than it would if we just let it shine on its own. Really what they fear is men. They fear the disapproval of an unbelieving world and they are cloaking it in the name of righteousness and being loving and being gentle and being kind. Perhaps though, as this commentator says, Haman would never have been promoted to second in command over the entire empire if Esther hadn't hidden her identity. She had just said who she was. I'm a worshiper of the God of Israel. Perhaps Mordecai, who came within moments of death. Remember last week, Haman was, had, had built the structure the night before. He was there very early in the morning waiting on the king to wake up. With one purpose in mind, and that is just to get the king's okay for him to impale Mordecai on it. And that was a sure thing, except that the king couldn't sleep the night before. And in God's providence, he asked to be read to from the book of the Chronicles of his reign. And in God's greater providence, what was read to him was the story of Mordecai saving his life. That's the only thing that spared Mordecai in this situation. Perhaps, though, if Mordecai had listened to the prophets in the first place and left Susa and returned to Israel, he'd, have, he'd had 50 years to do it. Or at the very least, if he had remained an open servant of the God of Israel, if he had not commanded his daughter to hide her identity, if he had not commanded his daughter to abandon the worship of God in her hiding of her identity, perhaps he could have spared not only himself, not, not only himself from personal misery, but he could have spared all the Jewish people from this condemnation that they are sitting underneath. 
And again, we can look at Mordecai and judge him, or we can see that we're just like him. How often have we ended up in sin? Or how often have we just missed an opportunity because of the fear of man? Thinking in our own wisdom that we're somehow wiser than God. And yet, as with Esther and Mordecai, in our faithlessness, God is faithful. God, as a good father, disciplines his children. He doesn't abandon us. He sees us through to the finish line. What better news is there than that? It's not dependent on our wisdom and our striving and our righteousness and our good ideas. He accomplishes all his good purposes, making straight lines out of crooked sticks, as the Puritans would say. Crooked sticks such as ourselves. And even as we see in this passage, he gives to his people his own victory. He conquers the nations with a rod of iron, causing them either to repent or to be dashed to pieces. And his victory becomes our victory. And the church doesn't need to feel bad about that. That, This is one of those hard truths of the gospel that the world hates. And so Christians often try to back up from it as far as we can. We never want to talk about it. We don't need to feel bad about it. Yes, we pray for the repentance and salvation of all people. When, when we consider the unbeliever, whether it be the unbeliever down the street or the unbeliever in the White House or the unbeliever in any other sphere, our disposition towards them ought to be one of urgent prayer. For their salvation. Desire to see them come to repentance and faith. For the glory of God and for their own good. That is true. But when nations are judged. And when individuals are judged. We must remember this. God is not being unjust. He's not being unfair. He's not being unrighteous. He has in fact been incredibly patient. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter what the nation is. God has been incredibly long-suffering and gracious. The thrice holy God owes sinners nothing but judgment. And yet any sinner who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How amazing is that? How astounding is that? All who come to him in, in humble faith and repentance... Will find grace, not judgment. He will in no way cast out any sinner who comes to the cross of Christ for mercy. How can a holy God do this? How can a holy God who owes judgment, who owes justice, do this? Well, because in Christ, Christian, when God sees us, he sees his son. When he sees us, he he sees only his son's perfect, spotless obedience. And when he sees Christ, when this holy judge of all the universe sees Christ, his wrath is abated because Jesus took all of the wrath that his people deserve. There's none left for us, not one drop. There's nothing left for for you, Christian, except God's limitless, eternal pleasure 
in his son. These are the essential realities of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we minimize the gospel, any portion of it, whether it's the good news for Christians about God's current disposition and eternal disposition towards us, or whether it's the bad news up front of the condemnation under which all men stand before God. When we minimize God by making him some kind of cuddly care bear in the sky who's just there wanting to hug, that's all he wants. When he's some sort of Mr. Rogers, some, some gentle Heavenly Mr. Rogers, who, who has no anger, he has no wrath, he has no judgment. It is a disastrous thing to minimize God in that way. Now, of course, God is the true source. He is the, the true fountain of all kindness, is he not? Of all graciousness, of all love, of all gentleness. Name any good attribute you want. God is the source and fountain of it, but he is also holy. He is also a warrior who will dash his enemies to pieces. And we shouldn't minimize any of it. We shouldn't be ashamed of any of it. He's a king before whom all other kings will bow down. God is by no means a universalist. Just spreading his arms wide and and just letting anybody in, no matter whether they reject him or not. He will give his kingdom to his people and only to his people. The scripture makes abundantly clear anyone who is not found in Christ. Why is God pleased with it? Christians, we can know that God is pleased with us for one reason only, and that is we are in Christ. I don't want him to look at me and see my spotty track record. Not even my track record of the years since my conversion. I'm doomed if that's my peace with God. God's pleasure with us is his pleasure in his son. And so all who are not in Christ will suffer the eternal just wrath of God forever that they deserve They'll be tormented eternally in hell. And they will, of course, be there by their own choice. They, they will have, 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 have gotten up every single morning and chosen to rebel. Chosen to commit treason. Chosen to sin against God. But make no mistake, it is God. The judge of all the earth who will one day speak the words to them, depart from me. You workers of iniquity. God does not divorce himself from this process. It's only a fool who would attempt to judge God for this. Who would look at these hard truths in God's word. These hard truths in the gospel itself. And attempt to judge God. As if somehow our understanding or our wisdom was greater than his. As if somehow our righteousness surpassed his own. As if our moral compass is more finely tuned than God's moral compass is. What nonsense. What blasphemy. And so here in these opening verses of Esther chapter 8, we see a picture of God's grace on the one hand and God's wrath on the other hand. Just outside the window. As this chapter is playing out. 
the early verses. Just outside the window, you can see the tallest structure in town by 25 feet. And on top of it, you can see the bloody corpse of a man that's been impaled, Haman, hanging outside the window. And inside the palace, there's joy. It's all going on in the same time. Inside the palace, there is joy and peace. And all you have to do is turn your head and look outside the window to see judgment. The custom of the Persians was to, if someone was a traitor and they had been executed, all of their possessions reverted back to the crown. The king got it. But here, King Ahasuerus gives it all to Esther. He gives her the house of Haman. That is just to say everything that's Haman's. And Esther sets Mordecai over Haman's house. So so all that was Haman's is now Mordecai's. Haman had earned it over a lifetime of service. Mordecai receives it in a moment. And while they celebrate this, while Mordecai is, is, is even being dressed in fine clothing, even having the king's ring placed on his finger, And a crown set on his head, all they have to do every time they look out the window is have their eyes open and they see the corpse of Haman. Is that justice? When when God says he's going to take vengeance on his enemies, is that the kind of thing you imagine, a bloody spectacle? This story is going to get so much worse than one guy being impaled, I assure you. Those of you that are familiar with the story of Esther in some version other than Veggie Tales know that it gets worse. Haman's ten sons are all getting put on that pole too. In fact, when the Jews write their names as the names are listed in the next chapter, they write them in columns. And it's just one more reminder that they were impaled. That that's going to happen. And then multiple thousands of people are going to be slaughtered. What about when we read throughout the Old Testament of God ordering the destruction of entire cities, entire people groups? Does that scandalize you? Are you embarrassed by it? Or are you able to rejoice in God's justice? I don't mean a kind of rejoicing that's giddiness and heel clicks and whatever else. Are you able to rejoice in a holy God exacting his justice as he sees fit? Or do you think you're wiser than God? When God takes vengeance on his enemies for his namesake, are we supposed to hang our heads and wish he'd never done it? Don't misunderstand. We are to preach the gospel to the wicked with much grace. With mournful, loving, humble hearts. Knowing that, but for the grace of God, we are right there with them. Apart from Christ, we are just like them. Apart from Christ, we are just like Haman. We are enemies of God. At war with him. We preach the gospel with gracious, loving, mournful hearts. But an essential part of that gospel message that God has given to us, that gospel which is the power of God for salvation for all who believe is this. If you do not repent, God will cut you down. That's part of the gospel message. 
And when God does it, it is a good thing. When God does it, he is righteous. When God does it, he is just. When God does it, it is pure. And that's what we rejoice in. We don't rejoice in the death of the wicked. We don't rejoice in in a person's eternal destiny in hell under the judgment and and active wrath of God. We don't rejoice in, in that, but we rejoice in the righteous justice of God. God is not ashamed of this. But we ought not be ashamed of it. We praise God, in fact, for the glory of his justice. And if he grants them repentance, how much more do we rejoice? We celebrate then. We welcome them into the family. We praise God for his glory in his grace and his mercy. But either way, God's glorified. Either way. And either way, we ought to rejoice. Again, our rejoicing looks very different in one case from the other. Or it should. We're not to be giddy about the death of the wicked. We, we are giddy about the repentance of the wicked. What a, what, a, what a glorious thing it is to see someone turn from death to life. But friends, we must never call God's righteousness evil. We must never do it. We are to, to glorify God for his righteous judgment, to rejoice in the vindication of his name. He has only ever done what is right. And we must remind ourselves of this. And now despite this victory over Haman, as Haman hangs outside, as he's been justly executed for his, his treasonous crimes, the war's not over. This, this edict that's gone out, that Haman crafted, that Haman wrote in the king's name is still in effect. There is still a date set throughout the entire Persian Empire where every Jew, every man, woman, and child is to be, as the edict says, destroyed, killed, annihilated. Neighbor is going to rise up against neighbor by order of the king. This is the law of the land. Those who live in the Persian Empire are bound to do this. Neighbor, rise up against your Jewish neighbor and slaughter them and plunder their goods. Verse 3 says, So then Esther spoke to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, the plot that was devised against the Jews. She's not weeping here because she can't handle her emotions. She's not weeping here because she's out of control. We have seen in the past two chapters, Esther is more than capable of remaining stable under the most intense of circumstances. She has become formidable, cunning, brilliant even. She's not weeping because she's out of control. She's weeping because this is the moment right here. Haman has now been executed. This condemnation still hangs over the Jews. This is the moment for God's people to be delivered. She is is weeping because she is righteously mourning. Her people are still sentenced to death. So she's humbly interceding for them to the king. It says in verse 4, When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. What does that tell us? It tells us that Esther's risking her life once again to intercede. Remember what holding out the golden scepter meant. When Esther appeared before the king unbidden, the sentence for appearing before the king unbidden was death, unless the king extends his golden scepter to you. 
This is the king sparing someone's life who would otherwise be losing their life. She's again risking her life to mediate on behalf of her people. And she begins to plead in verse 5 with the king. We're not going to reread all of this for the sake of time. She very powerfully and beautifully identifies herself with God's people. In verse 6, she says, How can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? She, she binds herself to them entirely. Let's just remember who Esther used to be. Not very long ago. Just a few days ago. This is the same Esther who when she first heard of this plan, of this planned genocide of the Jews, do you remember how she responded? She was told all the Jews in the entire empire are going to be slaughtered and she, will you intercede with the king? And Esther said, no. No, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm not risking my life. I'm not getting involved. God has transformed her. She's, she's now a different person. She's not satisfied with her own personal safety, security, prosperity. The reality of the situation is this. Mordecai and Esther are safe. This this edict is still in effect for neighbor to rise up against neighbor and all the Jews to be slaughtered. But there's no way, after all that this has happened, that the king's going to let Esther and Mordecai die. They're safe. They're out from under this condemnation. They're not going to be killed with the rest of the Jews. That's not enough for her anymore, her own safety. She wants all of God's people to be spared. Just a few days ago, Mordecai had to tell her, look, You're not going to save your own life. You're going to die just like everybody else. And now, even though she's out from under that, Esther wants all the people to be spared. Well, this obviously confuses the king. He doesn't understand why this would be. Verse 7, King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman. They have hanged him on the gallows Behold, he because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. So Esther's pleading with the king for for the Jews to be spared, for this edict to be reversed. And the king says, look out the window. There's Haman. He's dead. We've executed him. I gave you everything of his. Mordecai is now rich beyond compare. What more do you want? What more do you want from me? Ahasuerus is a selfish man. He only thinks of himself. He can't imagine for the life of him why Esther cares anymore. Well, it's over. Your enemy, Haman, is dead. You and your father are safe. Your enemy's been executed and I've given you all of his things. I can't imagine why you still care. But he says, since that's not enough for you, he goes on in verse 8. But you may write as you please in regard to the Jews in the name of the king. Seal it with the king's ring for an edict in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. He basically says, and people who know Hebrew, uh, a lot better than me who doesn't know Hebrew, uh, they they say that the, the basic thrust of the language here is do whatever you want. It's up to you. It's up to you to fix this. I can't do anything for you. You're going to have to fix it yourself. Now, could the king have revoked this edict? He absolutely could have. Absolutely he could. He's the king. This is king, great King Xerxes. 
He absolutely could have reversed this edict. He just executed the man who wrote the edict for treason. He absolutely could send something out and go, Haman is a bad guy. Just found out what he did. It's terrible. Edict canceled. He could have done that. He refuses to be embarrassed. History tells us that these Persian kings prided themselves on their infallibility. There's no way he's going to admit to a mistake. Absolutely none. And so he just authorizes them, make your own law. We'll see which one of these two laws wins out. Just use your brains. Come up with something to counteract it. Goes without saying, but this is a terrible way to run a nation. Just whoever's in power, make counteracting laws and see how we can do. It'd be terrible if the United States worked like that. There's no standard. It's all arbitrary. Whoever has the most power, that's who's going to win. So Mordecai composes an edict to counteract Haman's edict. Verses 9 through 14 echoes much of the language of chapter 3 in that original edict. When, when Haman's edict is sent out throughout the whole empire, the, the edict itself is, is intentionally almost identical to Haman's, except it's the exact opposite. It's a word-for-word reversal of Haman's edict. Now the Jews are free to assemble. The Jews are free to train for battle. The Jews are free to defend themselves. Verse 11 says, destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. Children and women included and to plunder their goods. In verse 15 it says, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes. Blue and white, with a great crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and every city. Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What is it? What is it that's producing? This light and gladness and joy and honor. What is making the Jews respond with feasting and celebration? Well, it's this. It's that the tables have been turned. They are now convinced that when their enemies attack them and the date is set, when the enemies will attack, that they're going to be ready for them. It's the assurance that when their enemies attack them, it is not the Jews who will be annihilated. It is they who will slaughter their enemies. And as we will see next week, there is a horrific amount of killing that is about to come from this. Why would God craft this story this way? God who directs the hearts of kings like channels of water in his hand. Our God who's in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Why would he craft this story this way? Why wouldn't he just deliver his people without bloodshed? Well, for starters, let me remind us of this. We need to humble ourselves. We must go into any discussion of the providence of God, the the ways of God, the actions of God with the utmost humility, realizing we are way out of our depth. When we begin to consider why God does what God does. We simply don't know the hidden wisdom of God. 
Well, we don't know most of why God does what God does. And our puny little brains can hardly handle the little bit that we do know. Even that which he has chosen to reveal to us is still too wonderful for our own understanding. All we need to do is read Romans chapter 9 to find that out. Things that God has revealed in his word are still too wonderful for us. Who are we to answer back to God? What have you done? Who are we to say, God, why have you made me like this? In his great kindness, though, God has revealed to us some things that help us to make some sense of this story. Really to to understand some of the tragedy and triumph, not just of the story of Esther, but of our own lives now. The first thing we need to keep in mind as we look at this and we look at the events that have played out and are going to play out in this story. As we look at the events that have played out throughout all of of, uh, Old Testament history and onward. The first thing to keep in mind is this. God is holy. God is holy and the wages of sin is death. Blood is always shed where there is sin. And everyone involved in this story is a sinner. There will be much death because of it. God is holy. The wages of sin is death. Second, most of these Jews in these cities, certainly in Susa and some of the other Persian cities, are there in disobedience. They've had 50 years to go back. God has sent prophets to call them back to himself. God has even moved the hearts of pagan kings to provide safe passage and supplies so that they could return home. And yet they chose to remain in Persia. They trusted the Persians more than they trusted in God. That's not really conjecture when we we look at Mordecai and Esther and what they did in the early chapters of this book. They've trusted in the Persians more than they trusted in God. And now they will have to defend themselves against the people that they have chosen to trust. And there will be much death because of it. In his mercy, though, God has not abandoned them. God is sanctifying them that they might repent and that their offspring might be more righteous than they were. That they might trust in the Lord more deeply than they had. The third thing we need to keep in mind when we see this is that death doesn't have the final say. We often look at these things and we think, well, death is the worst possible thing that could happen. And so it's really scandalous to us to see all the people dying. Death is not what we should fear the most. There are things worse than death. Death doesn't have the final say. God has the final say. And that's why Jesus says we should fear God the most. This holy God. This righteous God. This just God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. People want to accuse God of wrongdoing. Because he has sovereignly woven into the fabric of human reality, death. Though God tempts no man to sin. We see things play out the way they do and we know God could have changed that. And they want to accuse God. 
Now those who accuse God, those who are scandalized by the actions of God, it's not as though they have some sort of moral advantage over the Lord of glory. They don't. It's not because they're more loving than God is. They're not. It's not because they're more kind than he is. It's not because if they had created the world, they'd be so much more gracious than God has been. No, the reality is they accuse God because they hate him. And so they refuse to come to his son that they may have life. And here's the reality that these physical deaths point us to. Sinners are not just going to suffer here. They will suffer forever in hell. Unless they repent of their sin. Unless they receive from Christ his righteousness, which is freely offered in the gospel. Which can only be received by faith. with A faith that is, that is a gift itself. That's the only way of salvation. That's the only way out from this terrible condemnation. And sinners, because they hate God, say no. They say no to the free gift of the gospel. And we ourselves said no. This is the kindness of God. Undeserved kindness of God. That we find ourselves believers out from under that condemnation and accepted in Christ as beloved children of God. Because that's true in any moment. The Christian who, yes, may may suffer much in this life has infinite reason to rejoice and to have hope because we who are in Christ need not fear death. More than that. Now, Now, death is an enemy. The Apostle Paul says that. But we know what death means for us. We know what death means for the believer. We know that in an instant we will stand before our Savior. We know that we will be with God forever. We know that there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. We will be with God forever. And in the meantime, Between now and then, we know that God is working out every single detail of history, every single detail of our lives to accomplish his good, perfect, glorious purposes. And to work for our own eternal good. Ours, Christian, yours, personally. God is working in everything for your personal, eternal good. How could we not rejoice? In all things. How can we not trust in all things? How can we not hope in all things? God's enemies will surely fall, yes. But for those who are in Christ, we can never lose. In that we rejoice. In that we hope. We can rest in. We can trust in. We can rejoice in the sovereign rule of our God. And this is the best news. Let me close with this quote from G.C. Burkauer. He says, It is the living God of history who bends and breaks his challengers, who makes an end to wars, directs the wars of the Lord, 
and who as the Holy One is active in all the world, spanning the length and breadth of it. In no phase of the world's history is the rule of God in danger. And to that we say, praise God. What good news. In that we rejoice. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us such hope that that you have shown yourself to be so glorious and so faithful, so righteous and so just that we can rejoice in all things. We rejoice even in your justice. We rejoice with trembling and thanksgiving because on our behalf, all who are in Christ, your justice was poured out on Christ instead of on us. We pray, God, that you would make us faithful ambassadors of this king and this kingdom and this gospel that would proclaim boldly the whole gospel. This truth that all men stand condemned before a holy God in their rebellion and sin, but that this God has made a way through his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all who trust in him would find that in him their debt is paid. His eternal righteousness accredited to them. Their standing before God in Christ is one of complete justification and love and joy and acceptance and peace. Pray, Lord, will you would make us faithful to proclaim this gospel in this dark world. Pray, God, that you would cause our confidence and joy in you to grow. And I do pray, Lord, for any who hear my voice that don't know you, that in your mercy you would call them out of their darkness, out of their death, into life. In Jesus' name, amen.